Welcome to the Macworld Podcast, episode 454 for April 29th, 2015. We're brought to you this week by Red Hat, a company that helps bring enterprise management to open source software to do your important work. Hello, folks. This is Glenn Fleischman, a senior contributor at Macworld. And joining me, as always, is Susie Oakes, the executive editor of Macworld. Hello, Susie. Hey, Glenn. How are you doing? I am great. And we're going to spare listeners uh, complaining about Skype because I believe every podcast complains about Skype. So, Ermagerd, Skype. (laughs) (laughs) Skype is just fine. Uh, So later in this episode, we've got a special guest. We have Kyle Weens from iFixit to talk about tearing apart a brand new watch. It's so terrible that they have to tear it apart to see what it's awesome. I'm so jealous. I want to take mine apart, but I can't. It's one of the, actually, you know, of all the mailing lists, that are out there, I stay on iFixit. Like, there's so many lists I've I've unsubscribed to over the years, and I, I, I love getting their email because, like, hey, we just got we we flew people to Australia. Yeah, that's a cool part too. And they do such nice photography and, and yeah. else. So we'll, he'll be on later in this episode, and uh, we're gonna, and that'll be fun. You know, I'll talk about uh, that. And uh, so let's do some follow up though. Is uh, this last week was all watch week, but I think we've also had now weeks of photos. Is um, Susie? I think photos is a little bit of a problem for people. People, uh, have you switched over to be using it yet, or are you still resisting a little? Because uh, I am easing into it like a freezing cold swimming pool. I'm just, you know, sticking in a toe <laughs> at a time. I've put in some photos. I don't really want to do iCloud because I have too many photos, and I don't want to pay for it. Like, I already pay for extra Dropbox storage, so I've just been storing all my photos in Dropbox because I just don't want to have that many cloud accounts that I'm, you know, paying extra money for. So uh, I haven't been using photo library, but other than that, I mean, I like the interface. I like, you know, I'm, I'm fine with favorites instead of stars. Stars always seemed a little fiddly to me. Um, I love the editing tools. So I'm actually, you know, editing my photos a little more. I was kind of only editing on my iPhone for a long time. It was like I shoot everything with my iPhone. I do a couple edits and I post it like Instagram. And that's basically my photos workflow. So at least I'm doing more photo stuff on my Mac, but... Um, but yeah, I feel like a lot of people who've had problems, it's because, you know, they're trying to import a big library or a lot of libraries or sync everything to the cloud. And I have not been doing any of that. So, so that's been good to avoid problems, but I'm probably not using it, you know, to its full potential. Yeah. I, uh, I've been using it more because I'm trying to take the pain since I'm writing the Mac 911 column, I am taking the pain for readers and trying to sort things, oh, sort things out. Taking one for the team. Oh, Lordy. And, uh, you know, there's actually, I've got an article that'll be on Macworld at some point in the near future about, uh, using the new adjust tool in photos, which is actually quite superior compared to iPhoto. iPhoto had some decent adjustments, but it wasn't, I want to say that's sophisticated, and the interface was not that great either. And uh, I think the reformulation of it in photos is actually quite good. So I can do some editing that previously I think you'd have to do really in Aperture or Lightroom to get something approaching what you can do. And, and the tools are also more, I want to, like I say, approachable. They're, they're friendlier and interactive. So, uh, so I think that will be useful. People may find that. Nice. What what I keep hearing from people is I think there's a lot of confusion and reasonably so from between iCloud Photo Library and my Photo Stream, which we've uh, we were talked about. In- yeah, I kept Photo Stream on just as a way to you know send the last however I mean, thirty days or a thousand photos, whichever comes yeah, first. But no video um, from my phone. Free- yeah, no, no video. Right, and you don't pay for that. It doesn't count against your storage. It's something Apple just gives you. And right. It, and the thing that's maddening is I turned off iCloud Photo Library on one computer that has a relatively small library I eventually want to sync. And I turned it on on another, but I'd left my photo stream on on the computer I'm not syncing to iCloud yet, which is okay. So as I take new pictures on my iPhone, those photos are through iPhoto stream are showing up on that Mac, which is cool. However, the thing that's confusing, I've had people email me already about this, is my photo stream deletes everything from your phone if there's not enough storage after 30 days if you're not using iCloud photo library. But it does not delete them from your Mac if they sync down. So you will get a permanent copy there if you're set, I believe... To uh, and, and you don't even have to. That's right. There's no optimized full resolution download. You get the full resolution version on your Mac, and it's not auto deleted. It's kept there permanently if you have My Photo Stream enabled. So that's kind of the backup. 
And when you say that PhotoStream deletes them from your phone, it just takes them out of the PhotoStream album. If they're in the camera roll yes. on your phone and you haven't <laughs> taken them out, they're not like deleted everywhere. They're oh, just deleted. Like the, right. Just that PhotoStream little folder, smart album thing, whatever. Um, yeah, that only holds a certain number and then they disappear from your phone. So your phone doesn't fill up. But the if whatever you leave in your camera roll on your phone stays there. Like I have like two-year-old pictures in my camera roll on my phone, which is probably bad, not the right place to keep them. They are backed up in other places. But um, yeah, so my photo stream doesn't show that many, but my, my camera roll on my phone has like 11,000 pictures in it or something. Oh really yeah, bad. that's right. And then at some point you either get more storage, you know, on my on the desktop side, we essentially have infinite storage on the desktop. Now, some people would quibble with that if you're shooting video, a lot of video and so forth, or, or using your Mac as a DVR or other purposes where you could be, you know, filling it up with gigabytes of stuff every day. But for most people and most intents and purposes, we have infinite storage. You never need to delete anything again. And as a result, it means that you're you're out of sync with your mobile devices because you know the most you could have is uh, wait the top size is 128 gigs. I don't know why I can't remember that. It's 128 gigs, yeah. biggest mobile device, and I've got I don't know, like four terabytes on my desktop right now between internal and external drives. Yeah, see, I don't use a desktop right now. I have a MacBook Air at work and a MacBook Air at home, and they both have. I think my work one has 256, and my home one has 512. So I definitely don't feel like my storage is unlimited. Yeah. Which and you're so, you start to sync the iCloud photo thing, yeah. and, and it's it's. Um, I feel like parts of this weren't thought out well. Like I understand where Apple's trying to go with it, and if it had worked smoothly, like they had actually created, I don't know. Someone on Twitter this morning was saying, "Oh gosh, would you know why doesn't uh, Apple just buy Dropbox already?" I'm like, "No, please, no, 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 <laughs> no." If Apple bought, you're trying to ruin oh, Dropbox. <laughs> it's like I feel so terrible. Like you know, it's uh, we we make reasonable criticism of Apple all the time, but I feel like they are terrible at cloud services. I'm just they're not say, as they're not a market leader at cloud no, they, services at watch, all iCloud photo library in photos with this terrible, I mean, we are still, my wife is like asking me, like begging me to not use it because it, if you use the, the, in the interest of simplicity, I mean, people should go back and listen to last week's episode if they want to hear the long discussion with you and me, uh, Jeff Carlson and Joe Kissel about some of the details, but you know, uh, the syncing remains a problem. And because the options are pause for one day or disable the feature, I keep clicking pause for one day and it'll be, you know, 8.47 a.m. And my wife will say, I can't get email right now. And I'm like, oh, I'm sorry. I started a denial of service attack. I mean, iCloud photo library is uploading. It's maddening. I, I was just looking into whether, you know, how much additional upload bandwidth I could get at home because I'm on a business class Comcast and how much would that cost? And um, I may actually, there's gigabit ethernet a broadband router in my city, but not yet in my house. <laughs> and I mean, but you shouldn't need like business oh. class internet and gigabit broadband just to store your freaking I, photos in the cloud. <laughs> like, I'm just, I just, I wish Apple had just, I feel like they didn't put a throttle in. And, and I have yeah. to believe that 1.0.1, based on all of these complaints, there's going to, I mean, we know, okay, so you know, software development cycles, the point you know, the 0.1 version is always in production. Like whenever a software version is released, they're working on the bugs. They know are there. They just have to prioritize them into the next release. So whatever 1.0 of photos shipped with, there's a 1.0.1 that is going to be out, you know, in four to six weeks from when the first thing shipped, which will be, you know, like two to four weeks from now. And it's going to fix a lot of little problems. And hopefully it's going to have some throttle controls because that is the single biggest complaint I've heard from people who are experiencing it. And as Jeff Carlson had, I think he has just enough upload bandwidth that it may self-throttle, but only at a certain point, and I have too little, so it floods my pipe. So, oh, I don't know. It's just, it's nuts. So, like, I don't want to have to manage this. Why is Apple making people me just man- have too many photos? Is the problem? <laughs> Apple made these devices that take like you know beautiful many megapixel photos and they just stack up like cordwood and there's nowhere to put them all we're just drowning in photos it's the seating you're drowning it's all about flooding seating clouds uh but the seating part is the pain it's like i have a terabyte that i actually probably will with my crash plan backup because i had to move a drive and i'm using a uh crash plan has three different kinds of encryption options and i'm using the one where i retain the encryption key so neither they nor any other party can actually decrypt my data even though it's stored on their servers they have no access to it they're not even they're not storing it and so forth so but because of that when i move a drive from one computer to another the backup doesn't go i can move an entire backup set i can adopt a backup set if i need to change computers but you can't do that with drives or i either that or i messed it up but i think my, my understanding is you can't do it and i tried everything so i have a terabyte of data 
to get to Crash Plan, and they have a service. It's $130, including FedEx shipping both ways. Yeah. They sent me a multi-terabyte drive, and I can just copy my local backup with their, the encrypted version uh, and send it to them. And I'm thinking I'm going to do that because, again, like, I mean, they're better. I can, I've got them. Yeah, for, life's like, too short. Just <laughs> mail 40. them a drive. I've seen least, that. A couple of companies do that. And I'm like, that. it seems so, like, low tech, but it's so smart. It's very <laughs> compared high Compared to the FedEx. alternative. FedEx yeah. has really high throughput. <laughs> it always has. Uh, <laughs> Take less time. You know, this wasn't on our agenda, but I wanted to talk about one, uh, something else. We're going to talk about watch shipping, too. But I want to talk about uh, Google Fi. Uh, Project Fi briefly, uh, okay. which is kind of off our radar as Mac people, but I thought it's uh, an, an Apple users. But you need to have a, a Nexus 6, an Android phone, to use it. But this is Google's entry into the cell phone plan market as a mobile virtual network operator. They're using T-Mobile and Sprint's network, but trying to offload as much as possible to Wi-Fi. But I think it's I, you know I don't I don't think Apple will get into this business at all. It's been rumored for a long time that they. You know, oh, they're going to buy a cellular operator. They're going to build their own network. They're going to become this MVNO, a mobile virtual network operator. Uh, do you think it makes any sense for Apple to get into this business, watching Google uh, try a pilot project? Um, I don't really know. We actually we have something on Project Fi in the works that's going to explain like what it means to Mac users and what um, you know what Apple should do if Apple should follow the same path or not. Um, that's coming this week by a former Macworld staffer that you all know and love, Dan Warren. Yeah. So I can't wait to hear what he weighs in on that. I've been following I haven't been following it too closely, but I like how the, it seems to be set up where you will have, you know, wireless all the time, but yeah, it's gonna route it's gonna route everything to Wi-Fi as much as it can. So that should save you some caps, right? But it's yeah. Well, the data they have—it's interesting. I was breaking it out. It's like there's Wi-Fi and cellular calling and data, and and there's mm -hmm. uh, then there's I'm sorry, there's Wi-Fi calling and there's cellular calling. There's Wi-Fi data and there's cellular data, and then there's domestic and international. Domestic being United States, I should say, and uh, it's, it's it's not international. It's the United States and rest of world. And then there's the 120 plus countries that are supported in their cellular offering, and then the countries that are not the United States or those countries. So it's it, it mirrors a T-Mobile plan that already exists, but the entry price is pretty low. I mean, you have to buy a $600 phone. Uh, and they're offering a two-year installment plan if you, uh, with no interest or charges, um, extra charges, if you want to pay for it over two years. Uh, but if you've got a Nexus 6, you could pay as little as $30 a month if you're not going to use more than a gig of data. And they refund your unused data part, um, like, you know, sounds like dollar for dollar. So uh, if you are around Wi-Fi a lot, and then, you know, if you're overseas, you're in, uh, you know, uh, I should say a supported country, let's say France. And if France is supported... If if you want to make calls over Wi-Fi to the United States, they're free, which is great. If you make calls over cellular to anywhere, any of the supported countries, it's twenty cents a minute in France. So you have a you know a you have a predictable rate, and data outside the U.S. is throttled to two hundred fifty-six kilobits per second in those hundred and twenty countries that are supported, but it's still unlimited. So you can use yeah. like a web speed. Um, wherever you're traveling, and only be pay I should say unlimited. It's charged at the ten dollars a gigabyte rate, so you're you're not throttled any further. You're not cut off, and you're not paying you know ten dollars a byte or something like you do in other plans. Right. So it's all uh, it's all very interesting because I feel like I know Apple hasn't gotten to the plan side. Like they've really because they've had so much control in a way that carriers don't let anybody else have control. I felt like they don't need to extend so far into the plan because they just you know they're making their money on the phone side and and not on the rest. Another part that's interesting that's kind of similar to what Apple's doing is that Google is going to, to sort of decouple your phone number from your phone, yeah. and instead your phone number is kind of in the cloud, and it can go to that phone, but it could also go to, you know, like a tablet or a laptop. And Apple kind of does this already with um, messages and FaceTime. Like, you can, you can tie your number to your iCloud account, the, the one that you use for mes messages and FaceTime, and then someone can, you know, use their phone to call, make a FaceTime call to my phone number, and it'll ring on my Mac. So, so I mean, that's really convenient. That yeah, you don't have to have the phone nearby with the Google thing. It's just the number moves. So with Apple, you have to have the phone within, like, Bluetooth range, I think. That's true, yeah. But so it's, it's interesting. It's not Apple quite the same thing, but it's... Yeah. 
Yeah, I like the idea that, you know, your phone number isn't just for your phone. I'm just excited that some of the, like, monolithic hegemony, <laughs> what we call it, of the cellular industry, where there's been this, you know, very high price. Data has been very scarce and very high priced. And and even though T-Mobile and this plan both offer, they are, you know, T-Mobile has unlimited data, but their unlimited is, at, you know, you get LTE speeds you hit your threshold and then we throttle you down. But that's, they explain it clearly. They had some issues before about how they're explaining it, I think. Uh, but, you know, that means you're not paying overage fees. With Google, they're like, you can pay this flat rate for as much data as you want. And if you're international, you're just getting throttled. But again, you're not paying as high a rate. And I, I don't, uh, you know, I think uh, some of our colleagues at IDG, we were talking about it in the, in the chat room, um, suggested that this is very limited. It's an experiment, and, and I, I agree. I think it is an experiment, but I, the more companies that, especially companies of the scale of Google, that get involved in pushing back against um, the current pricing structure and the idea of the sort of false scarcity that's out there, uh, the lower prices I think will pay because we've already seen some big drops in cost. And this puts a really nice, like, low-end price ticket. You still have to buy the phone. But you're not going to pay forever for the phone in your bill, which has been a big change with a lot of carriers in terms of how yeah. subsidies are handled. And you could start at $30 a month, and you, if you didn't use any data, you'd get 10 bucks of that back. If you didn't use any cellular data, then you'd get 10 bucks back and have unlimited calling. So these plans are starting to kind of approach something that seems reasonable given what kind of profit margins the companies are making. They can, they can eat a little profit and give people a little better service. Yeah, it definitely feels like a pilot program since it's only working with the one phone so far. But it's super interesting, and I can't wait to see how it goes, where it goes from here. There'll be, there'll be more. It's not going to get more expensive, I think, is the trend for a lot of things. I think we're now pushing down, or same for less. Apple's philosophy has often been, we're going to give you something better for the same price. And other companies have been, we're going to give you something the same for a lower price. And that's those are the two challenging models. So we'll see that happening in cellular. Um, watch shipping. Watch shipping occupied a very large percentage of a lot of people's minds last week, including yep. ours. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> When's your watch coming, Susie? I got it. Oh, I got it on Friday. You. I, oughta. I worked from home. And uh, yeah, I was home all day. And it came at around 1.30. And the UPS guy was sitting like right by the door because I wanted to. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, my oh, kitchen yeah. table is right by the door. And I had like the curtains open so I could see the door. And it was just like, there's no way like this guy is going to come and I'm going to miss it. So I opened the door like two seconds after he knocked. I think I was I already had my hand on the doorknob like when, by the time he made it to the door. And he was just like, wow, <laughs> you're really excited for this thing. <laughs> So yeah, I've I wore it all weekend. I've been wearing it. I'm wearing it now. It's pretty cool. I like it a lot so far. I mean, I'm working on taking notes for the review, and I'm working on some stuff about the built-in apps, and just lots of you know tips and tricks and stuff like that. But it's pretty cool. I I, I had it. I didn't want to just sit at my desk all weekend and like you know futz with it. I wanted to take it out and around. So we had a lot of things planned this weekend. A lot of family things and social things. So. So I was I was out trying to give it, you know, real-world tests, and so far, pretty impressed. It doesn't do everything I would like it to do, but um, it's kind of cool. It's, it's funny because, so they say that, you know, the watch, I guess one of the ideas behind the watch is that you will be able to get some quick glanceable information just on your wrist, and you won't have to be digging out your phone all the time. But, I mean, when you first get a watch you're glued to your phone like all the time because <laughs> like notifications come in and most of the notifications just show you something like a, a lot of them aren't actionable if you have that so you, the notifications are just mirrored from your phone so you can have a notification for an app you have on your phone but that you don't have on your watch either because oh, it doesn't okay. have a watch app yet or you just didn't put it on your watch because your watch is clogged up with a bunch of Apple apps that they won't let you delete um, so yeah, you're really glued to your phone for a while, kind of tweaking everything and moving in and updating your phone apps and putting Apple watch apps on the, on the watch. And yeah, so I didn't notice, you know, that my phone was lasting longer, that I wasn't using it as much. Like I was probably using my phone more just because, you know, I was trying to, to make sure they were talking to each other, but, oh. but it's working pretty well. Yeah, the, uh, that was something interesting I saw, and I'm really curious how that plays out. Is some people were saying, you know, I've been using my watch heavily all day, and I have, you know, 50% or whatever. They're like, they're really surprised by the battery charge. They look at their yeah. phone, and their phone was down mm -hmm. to like 30 or 20%, where normally that time of the day they might have had, you know, half or three quarters of a charge because it's rendering stuff like mad the more you're using yeah. the watch. 
Yeah, most of the information it's getting is from the phone. So I've noticed that like for things with um, with location information in it, like there's a weather glance on the watch and there's a map glance on the watch. I killed the map glance because I don't really ever need to know my exact position on a map when I'm like just scrolling through my glances. You are directly beneath the Earth's sun. No. No. I'm on a road. <laughs> appears to be asphalt. <laughs> yeah. That's yeah. for listeners who are our age. <laughs> <laughs> um, I texted somebody that I was at the Rose Bowl and the, the Goodyear blimp was going over. And I'm like, I'm directly under the Goodyear blimp now. <laughs> Oh man. Anyway, yeah, so the there but there's a map app on the on the watch's home screen. So if I need to, you know, do a map, I can I can open it, but just when you're flipping through the glances one after another, getting to that map one, it would it would never render. It would just be like a little spinny thing and I would be like, "Okay, like glances are supposed to be immediate. I'm moving on." Yeah, so I, I killed the like... map's glance, and even the weather glance like takes forever cuz it has to tell the phone, the phone has to find out where you are, like figure out the weather, spit it back over to the watch. So, yeah, there's a few things that are kind of slow. Location things seem to be the slowest so far. That's what I, I keep hearing, uh, and this is this is such a, a 1.0 thing or even a pre-release thing, because we've seen with some Apple products, I think iOS devices in particular, new iOS releases, there's been, uh, during the review phase, and in, including people who've gotten uh, early access to uh, equipment for reviews. Those jerks. Yeah, there'll, there'll be something like, oh, this thing is really, you know, it's really slow, it's whatever, and then by release, it's fixed. Well, in this case, we're not seeing it fixed, um, but you know, again, there'll be a, a watch OS update at some yeah, point. Yeah, this could be fixed like next week for all yeah, I know. Because I gotta think that the thing they're working on the the most right now has gotta be making it faster because that slight lag it must drive everybody that nuts. Yeah. It's not not driving people nuts at Apple too. Uh, but other things are not laggy. Like there's a shutter button on the Apple Watch where you can take a picture using the camera on your iPhone, and that is really responsive. It's fast, and there's a you can there's two buttons on the watch screen. There's one that's a shutter button that just takes it you know immediately, and then there's a little three second timer button, and you hit that, it counts down three seconds on your watch face and then bursts 10 pictures with your phone. So that way you don't have a selfie of you like looking at your watch, like, you know, <laughs> distracted by the countdown. And, you know, the, like the 10 pictures is kind of fun. You can do the thing where you like jump up in the air and try to get your picture taken. So, so yeah, that's a lot of fun. Um, and, and that isn't laggy at all. And the, the messages app seems really good and not too laggy. Um, there's a now playing glance from the music app and I was thrilled to discover that that um, will control the music app on your phone and your watch. But it'll also, if you have audio playing from a different app on your phone, like I use Instacast, I use RDO, the now playing glance on the watch can control those too. So, you know, like oh, when you open, great. yeah, like when you open Control Center on your iPhone, when you have music playing in another app, like, you know, you'll still get the fast forward and pause and stuff. That all works on the watch, too. So I was like, okay, I'm pulling down songs from the cloud, playing them on my phone, sending them from my phone to my Chromecast, and controlling all that on my watch. Like, this is freaky, future, crazy time. And there, you know, you'd hit pause and there'd be like a second, maybe delay, but. The delay was not annoying at all in that case because you're just like, wow, this is so cool. I can't believe that I can control this. And like the music isn't on the watch. The music isn't even on the phone. Like the music is up in the Internet somewhere. So the fact that it's all coming down and you're controlling it pretty seamlessly like just feels like magic. I'd, I'd recommend uh, a piece of reading for folks uh, at Medium. It's by Matt Howey, who is the founder of Metafilter. He wrote this actually really moving. It's it's funny. It's a watch review ostensibly, but it's also kind of um, it's re- a little searing. It's uh, because it it's about the way information gets surfaced to you, whether you want it or not. And so he's talking about you know a estranged father and so forth. And it's totally appropriate and in co- it's personal writing in context, but it really has to do with the watch. I mean, it really is about the technology because of the choices. Uh, Apple made uh, in what it shows for contacts and other things, and he he's very funny because he's like, you know, I'm the jerk. Or he's a stronger, not safer podcast word, who uh, you know, I own all this equipment, and he's got you know remote control. He writes about this regularly. He's likes to test stuff 
on his own. Yeah. He's just interested in things. He has, you know, a internet controlled garage door opener and he's a serious cyclist and he's got exercise monitors. So he really knows what works and what doesn't because he's tried it and he's not a reviewer. He just, I mean, he, he does review things, but he's not working for a publication. He's a guy who's really kind of a gadgety guy for stuff that is high utility that really fits his needs. And uh, so his take on the watch, I think, I don't want to say it's it's not intended to be contrarian or negative, but I think it's a really interesting nuance when somebody who is probably the ideal customer for it gets it and is just not happy with a lot lot of parts of the experience uh, and so that'll be that'll be fascinating um, so one last thing is I know uh, developers did not get any special ordering rights ahead of launch and then Apple sent a note out uh, after ordering it started offering some not, like randomly selected developers uh, of a specific watch model which one must assume they have an excess of <laughs> that if they ordered by April 27th would arrive guaranteed by FedEx on April 28th you know, so they'll probably do waves of it because some people already have gotten their watches or not want to buy the the sport aluminum uh, blue band one. I think. Right. So I've seen a lot of people writing about how they thought that the early watch apps suffered a bit because developers literally didn't have watches in hand or on wrist. They were using the simulator, and, and so all of the experience and and choices they were making were what they could do, you know, in Xcode in a simulator. And now with watches, Apple's, you know, it's in their best interest to get developers' watches as soon as possible. We'll see refinement coming up, I would think. Yeah, I would think so. Um, the the I've been focusing more on the first-party apps just at first, but I've been installing a few third-party apps. And the thing that I've seen developers kind of warning each other about on, on Twitter and stuff is that when you're in the simulator, you want to like give your, your text and stuff a little bit of padding, but you can really go like to the very edge of the screen because that black bezel around on the watch will act as the padding and your, your stuff won't look crowded. But then when you take a screenshot of it, sometimes the screenshot sort of looks weird. Like I'm going to have to get, you know, a simulator that I can drop these screenshots into before I post them on the website. So they don't look so strange because sometimes they look like, Oh, that's like not an attractive app, but it looks great on the watch. It's just that, you know, like, so the black screen on the watch is surrounded by a black bezel and it's seamless when you look at it. It's really hard to see the edges of the screen. But, um, yeah, so the developers obviously, you know, can only put stuff on the screen and not in the bezel. So they're able to use the entire screen and cram on as much as they want, as they can. Yeah, I've seen some that look a little horsey because I think they... They couldn't visualize it, and it's hard. I mean, when people were writing the first iOS apps for the iPhone, they had an iPhone. You yeah. had an iPhone. And, and the simulator for the iPhone, I have to say, in, in, uh, in running Xcode and uh, seeing Xcode demonstrations uh, of the watch simulator, um, the, uh, the iPhone and iPad simulators are really much closer in experience to what you can get from a device, and the watch is just so different. Mm -hmm. And the, the nature, it's different to be squeezing with two fingers and to tap and this turning the digital crown and so forth. So that, that's going to be good. Um, yeah, and it'll probably well, just be a difference into like, you know, after they use the watch for a while, they'll sort of learn like, okay, that function really needs to be a button that nobody can miss. But this other like function is, feels a little more secondary and we might be able to kind of hide it behind a force touch and take, you know, take a button away from the interface in that case. Because, um, yeah, you can kind of, like, several of the Apple apps, like you seem, at first uh, I was looking at notifications being like, there's no button to clear all the notifications. Like, that's really annoying. I got to clear these one at a time. But, oh, there is. You just have to force tap. <laughs> and then if, if, if you tap. force tap enough. And that's the other thing you have to get used to. Like, force tapping isn't just a long press. Like, you got to really push. So you give it a force push, and then a button pops up to clear all notifications. So Yeah, and you don't have to hold it down. Force push is hard. It's not long. Yeah. But that's confusing. It's just, the, I have to say, having played with them at the store now a few times, I just took my kids in over the weekend because they were curious. We were nearby. And, uh, and watching them with, mess with it. And I've heard some people say, oh, I just handed it to my kid, and they immediately intuited it. I'm like, my kids are used a lot of technology. They're very bright. I didn't tell them what to do, and they're like, wait, how do I do this? And they're spinning, and they're doing it. Just, yeah. It's going to take a lot. You've got a crown that spins that you can click. You've got a button. You can double-click the button. You've got force touch. You've got tap. You've got slide. It's going to take a, 
uh, this seems like a very fussy interface to me, to be quite frank. And I think it's going to be intuitive to some people and less so to others compared to iOS devices. It's not the same. Yeah, thing. I'm still fumbling with it a little bit after a couple of days, but it's not bad because there's only like so many things it can do. So if you're like, oh, I just went to my home screen instead of my notifications. Now I got to go back to watch and then swipe down to notifications. It's not that bad. You know, like these are really like, you know, one second interactions. So if you well, if you how, do the wrong one, you just like, oh, I got to back up and do the other one and it it'll get better, but yeah, it is it's a little clunky. My question is how sore is your uh bicep and forearm? Oh, not at all. Yeah. Okay. No, not at all. <laughs> I know I wore it all day yesterday. I mean, just from, you know, raising it and lowering it. Yeah, cuz you you yeah, holding it in place. I picture you having to hold it sort of in front of you to do things a lot of the time, too. Nah, not so much. Um cuz I mean, right. you can you can get a glance at it just like whipping your wrist around, so you don't have to like pull your whole arm up. Like if you have it the the clock pointed the face pointed away from you and then you you jerk your arm so the face is pointing towards you you don't have to like raise your arm all the way um to wake it up so yeah that's fine the, I, I got the milanese loop or as i call it the mayonnaise loop because that's just funny um and so i wore it all day yesterday and then i was up really late like trying to get some stuff written about it so i had it on from like 8 a.m until i think one in the morning and at one in the morning, it was really starting to annoy me. I was like, it's mm. itchy. Get it off. Like, I don't want this on anymore. And I kept trying to, like, make it looser, but then it would feel too loose. And so I love how adjustable it is. And it looks really nice. And most of the time, it's comfortable. But, yeah, that was a marathon day I was wearing it. And it was still at 13% when I went to sleep. So, Oh, that's uh, that's very interesting, though. It's going to be when people travel. That's what I'm yeah. curious about is you have to have a whole different routine. It's hard to get a uh, plug near your bedside in some hotel rooms or, you know, you're staying in your parents' upstairs old room and they have two-prong adapters on the far wall, maybe if you're lucky or you run an extension cord. So that's going to be interesting when, you, when people travel because I think you can do a lot of catches, catch can with an iPhone uh, or even an iPad uh, or you throw a laptop somewhere in a corner, but um, the watch you're going to kind of want near you maybe? I don't know. We'll see. Yeah. I uh, didn't bring the – I realized today when I was on the bus coming to work that I didn't bring the charger with me to work. So I'm, I'm uh -oh. kind of living dangerously. Like I'm going to have to use it a ton today, obviously. Um, so if it, if it dies before I get home, like that'll be a giant bummer. But I think it'll make it. I'm, I'm optimistic. Well, we'll talk in a moment. Uh, I'll be talking with Kyle Weens of iFixit about what makes the inside of this thing tick. But before we talk to Kyle, before I talk to Kyle, I should say, uh, uh, let's uh, have a word from our sponsor, Red Hat, uh, who's uh, the sponsor for this week's Macworld podcast. You know, at this point, everyone understands that in the right situations, open source software is important technology. It's useful and powerful. No one really disagrees with that. I mean, the most successful open source project of all time is a little thing called the internet. Tim Berners-Lee put the WWW in the public domain. And then, of course, there's Berkeley Unix, TCP IP, BSD, Linux, Android, the Internet of Things, you get the picture. There's a lot of open source and free software inside of all the things that Mac users and Apple uh, iOS users use as well, I should point out. The only real disagreement is whether open source can be used in an enterprise situation to do the most important work. And that's where Red Hat comes in. They've been settling this debate one customer at a time for over a decade. They started with Red Hat Enterprise Linux. And today, they certify and support application development, storage, and cloud infrastructure for every conceivable enterprise deployment. The New York Stock Exchange, DreamWorks, each and every airline, healthcare company, and telecom giant in the Fortune Global 500, they all rely on Red Hat. In fact, more than 90% of all the companies in the Fortune 500 are Red Hat customers. Why is that? Because they get the powerful, constantly improving innovation of open source without the risk of having to do it alone. It's that simple. Red Hat Enterprise Software trusted in the world's most demanding data centers. You can find out what they can do for yours at redhat.com. And thanks to Red Hat for being our sponsor this week. And uh, now uh, we're, we separately recorded. I was able to talk to Kyle Weens, and uh, we'll go to that now. So let me welcome Kyle Weens to the Macworld podcast. Kyle, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me on. It's a pleasure. And uh, we won't uh, go into all the technical difficulties we had in getting this to work, but you work in the repair industry. You help people figure out how to repair things, so you're no stranger to technical problems. 
Absolutely not. <laughs> uh, so, I Kyle, you're the head of okay. iFixit, and iFixit is known for uh, multiple things. I know that one of your, uh, you know, the, from the, the commercial and, like, consumer side, it's uh, you publish guides. You do these uh, uh, guides that tell people how to repair things. I've used them many times myself. And you also sell equipment and parts. Uh, you know, I replaced Ida MacBook Air 2011. The battery got worse and worse. I looked at your guide, convinced myself it was a minor repair, bought the part from you because I didn't have to buy it from somewhere else, put it in, and I got another two plus years out of it before I just sold it. So uh, I think that's what people know you as, uh, you know, on the commercial side, but you also have fun taking stuff apart. That, it seems like a lot of fun to disassemble things. Oh, we have a blast. Yeah, we, our mission is to teach everybody how to fix all their stuff and we get to start out but with the new things. So we're, we knew we we're going to write a repair manual for it. Eventually we might as well get it on launch day and find out what's inside. Yeah, and I think uh, I think it's important to emphasize that your stuff's available to everybody. You don't have to be a con customer of your site. That's one reason why we're always so comfortable uh, talking to you is that you're not a uh, you're not pushing stuff. You're pushing knowledge, and you also sell stuff as opposed to selling stuff, and then knowledge is wrapped up inside of that on the side. Right, we're like Wikipedia, but when it comes to fixing things, you also need in order to fix something, you need to know how to do it. You need the parts. You need the tools. So we give all the information away for free. A lot of it is written by our community, not written by us. It's a it's a community site. And then if you need them, we've got parts and tools available. Yeah, and you've done things like you've reverse engineered the Pentalobe uh, screwdriver when Apple introduced that strange, uh, you know, machine oriented assembly part. You came up with a person, a human oriented tool that would let us take things apart with it. We did, and we're in the process of designing a new screwdriver right now, Ooh. thanks to this Apple Watch. Oh my gosh! Well, that's good. Yeah. So let's let's get into that. So you uh, uh, did you have someone fly to Australia or people based in Australia to get the products when they're first uh, released by the clock? Yeah, so we're not cool enough to have a permanent Australia outpost. <laughs> so uh, Andrew and Sam, two of our uh, teardown engineers, flew out to Melbourne. And uh, we have friends that run a repair shop in Melbourne called Mac Fix It. They're fabulous. We work with them on a regular basis. And uh, th we've actually, we have photo equipment set up, ready to go at their, at their repair shop so we can Go get the Apple Watch. Normally, we're waiting in line. We didn't get to wait in line this time. We got to get the watch and, and take it into their shop and, and do the disassembly. Oh, you didn't have to wait in line because everything was delivered no matter where you were in the world. The only watches that were received were actually dispatched. Right. This is Angela Rent's big change to Apple. No more lines ever or something. <laughs> whatever their current, <laughs> whatever they're doing day to day, she says that they will bring lines back in the future, but for the moment she has abolished them. And it made our life a little bit more difficult because we're used to going and waiting in line overnight and then being the first person in line in Australia and we get it. And we, so this kind of threw us for, for a loop, but we figured it out. Oh, that's funny. So, oh, that's, that's very interesting, right? Because you're willing to, to do the line waiting thing. I uh, went to an Apple store. I'm in Seattle and we have this giant store uh, in the University Village. And I, I just happened to be by there with my kids uh, a couple days ago. And I popped in and I asked, you know, I had very such friendly people in the stores. The guys like, hey, you need anything? I'm like, no, I'm just showing my kids the watch. And I said, you don't have any, right? And he said, no. And I said, mine's due in two weeks. And he said, mine too. And I said, None of the stores is getting any inventory. He said, no, you won't believe this, but the San Francisco store, one of them got like 50 watches to sell. Really? Yeah. I haven't heard that. I don't know. They must've gone in like 15 seconds, but uh, yeah. So, but that's, that's. Or they the, just didn't sell them. They were saying some of the boutiques had a few watches available to sell, but not the official Apple store. I imagine there might be a couple editions hiding around there as well. I don't know. I haven't seen anybody with an edition yet. Oh, except the, I am very eagerly watching, except Beyonce celebs, yeah. and yeah. yeah. It's interesting. Well, you took, uh, you took apart the MacBook, which I know ranked, uh, let's say very poorly on the repairability scale, but that was the same thing. They didn't have them in the stores. You had to get one shipped. Correct. And then. Yeah, we had to get it shipped. Yeah. And we did that here in California. So we have a good relationship with our UPS delivery guy. <laughs> and first he on the knows when we need, yeah, he knows when we need it first and they, they work with oh, us. So we're able to get it fast. But over there, we were actually having to build uh, relationships with the shipping carriers over there, which is a company that recently got bought by FedEx, but it's not FedEx. Oh, that's so funny. Every country, the shipping, the situation is a little bit different. Um, so, you know, we, we, we were excited, uh, we were anxious, we weren't sure if we were going to get it. Finally, we, we got it around 10.30 a.m. Uh, Melbourne time, which is around 4.30 p.m. our time on Thursday. And, and you ordered, you got two different watches. Yes, so we were fortunate enough, we got both an aluminum sport watch and the stainless steel uh, Apple Watch watch. I know there's some big differences in how uh, uh, we keep referencing this. Uh, Greg uh, Koenig, uh, who's an industrial designer, yeah. he wrote this thing about uh, all the, the radically different 
processes of making the metal parts of it. And so I know stainless steel and aluminum have dramatically different paths from raw material into the, into the rest. But in terms of the interiors, is it is it a very similar item on the inside and the assembly? Yeah, they're almost identical inside. We have not completely dismantled. I have the, the stainless steel watch that we pulled apart here, and we haven't pull, completely pulled it apart. But it looks to be the other casing is different. Obviously, the the, the crown is, is different. And some of the support structure around the cr crown seems to be slightly different on the, on the stainless steel one. But aside from that, everything looks identical that we've seen so far. Uh, but we will be examining it in more detail uh, throughout the rest of the week. Oh, that's interesting because, you know, one of the uh, ideas that's floating out there is that uh, I've forgotten the essay when I read this was that Apple assembled a relatively small number of watches and they have a lot of raw material ready to go. So they're doing some of the mix and match at this point because the innards are interchangeable and uh, it's the last stages that would let them focus. So, in fact, just as we were recording, I got an alert on my phone or just a minutes before we were recording that my uh, watch that was supposed to arrive uh, May 13th to 27th, a, a, a black um Sport, you know, space gray sport black band, which is probably the most popular one right. sold. It's arriving uh, tomorrow. It's going to arrive okay. first thing in the well, morning. There you go. So, and it was, you know, so there, so there's clearly some kind of gap there in terms of how they're managing expectations. But uh, uh, I think it's particularly good insight that if the if the interior is so very similar, if maybe the yeah. assembly process is almost identical, it gives them a lot of flexibility in the supply chain and and uh, to releasing watches in different kinds. Right. I mean, the the, the face of it, you know, the, the uh, glass on the digitizer, that's different depending on if it's the sapphire or not uh, and, and the different sizes. But there's really just four of those parts, right? There's the two sizes and then the two different screen sizes. And then it's the same. It's the same display assembly, whether it's an edition or a regular Apple Watch. Well, and uh, so this thing does not have external screws, so you get it, and the first thing you have to do is figure out how to start disassembling it. Now, uh, uh, you've mentioned this is somewhat similar to iOS, uh, newer iOS devices, right? That it's uh, the seamlessness of it. Right. They want it to be completely a seamless, you know, gorgeous enclosure. And, uh, but, but we're, we're accustomed to this. I mean, this is very similar to the iPad. So we looked at this thing and we're thinking this, this design reminds us of the iPad and our assumption going into it was that we were going to need to go into it from the display. So the way that the iPad is put together is that the, the digitizer, the glass is glued to the metal frame. Uh, and, and the way that you get in is you heat it up and then you pry your way and you, you loosen the adhesive and then you, then you lift the glass up. So that was the, the first way that we started to get into the Apple watch. And it turns out we were right. That's exactly how it's assembled. There is a thin bezel uh, that, that acts both as a waterproofing gasket and also as, as the glue membrane that holds the, uh, the watch face to the watch. It's IP77 water resistant. And, and that, that really all comes down to the, whatever gaskets that you're using and what the membranes are. All watches have penetrations of some kind, and those penetrations have to be protected by a gasket. That gasket uh, is going to protect it to an extent, but the reason that nothing is waterproof is that you, you can have extreme temperature differentials. So if you take it and it's on your, your wrist and it's 98 degrees, and then you drop it in a bucket of ice water, uh, that's, a, that's a much more dramatic temperature shift, and the different parts of the watch are going to start contracting at different rates, and it can create a gap in the... Uh, in the the gasket. So that's the sort of waterproofing. I'm seeing people saying, oh, I stuck it in a pool. I'm like, that's not an interesting waterproofing test. We need to see rapid temperature changes if you really want to see a good waterproofing test. Right. The people in the shower, they walk. They have heard some showering tests, uh, the otherwise known as the Robert Scoville test of technology. Yeah. Um, I don't need I, to I see Robert be... Scoville in the shower ever again. With a, he's not, we're, we will not show, we know pictures on our site <laughs> of you. that. Of that event. He took it one for the team there with the Google Glass. Uh, and I assume there'll be scuba uh, packages for this at some point, too, is that someone will create a you know much more elaborate pressure, uh, you know, deeper pressure sure. case that you'll snap the thing into because you can get those for a third party for all sorts of stuff already. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, we'll see. I mean, the touch and the you know, replicating the crown and everything, it'll be interesting. I don't I don't know what need there is for an Apple Watch underwater. <laughs> once, it, once they add the selfie cam to it, that's really when it's going to take off. Oh yeah, can you imagine? Can you imagine that? So you you uh, managed to get the uh, so you get the the touch screen uh, uh, off, and then um, I thought when I was following along, I was hitting the reload while you guys were posting this, and and it seemed um, like there was a fair amount of surprise about how relatively easy things were to take apart. That they were not uh, anywhere near the extremes that you might have you know that some of the other devices like the MacBook have been to disassemble. 
Yeah, I think people have this perception that we're really anti-glue. Uh, I'm pretty okay with glue if there's a if there's a mechanism, if there's a process for getting getting it off. On on the IMAX, they have a uh, kind of a foam adhesive and a pizza cutter tool that that you use to cut the adhesive off, and then the glass comes right off, and that's a pretty good design. So we're okay with glue as long as there's a straightforward path in. In this case, there was. You have to use a very sharp, either an exacto knife or we have a, a tech knife that we used to to start. You start at a corner to start prying it up, and then you can get a guitar pick in, and you go all the way around the edge, and you slice the adhesive. Uh, one thing that's kind of nice about this, in contrast with the iPad, is that it, it's not... It, we weren't in, at risk of damaging one of the display cables as we were we were opening it up, so they were, they were nice in the design there. It was pretty clear to us, opening this up, that this is a watch that's designed to be opened and serviced. That's what I wonder, because, I mean, I'm seeing even these... I mean, there's so many tiny little connectors and screws and so forth that, uh, I mean, surely they could have made it, let's say, worse if they just meant for the interior to be ripped out and replaced entirely as opposed to elements replaced like the battery. Correct. Yeah. Particularly, I mean, it's interesting because, I mean, by the time you get all the way through it, you're like, okay, this the plan here is that they're expecting the watch faces to get scratched or cracked or broken, and they're expecting the battery to wear out. So they designed it so that you can replace the screen and you can replace the battery and the rest of it is all pretty integrated and hard to get to. Oh yeah, let's sidebar onto batteries for a second because I, I saw once again, uh, I think ever since Apple misexplained the battery life of the original iPhone, uh, <laughs> they, they've been suffering from that ever since because I saw Apple posted an item that I think it's, uh, the watch is expected to perform, if I'm remembering what they right, what they said, it's a thousand complete cycles uh, retaining 80% charge at the end of that. And that's the performance characteristic. And we know that Apple won't replace a battery uh, out of warranty if it's below those characteristics, but that's their general expectation. It's not a promise so much as an expectation. Can you explain right. the complete cycle? Because I think this gets misunderstood what that means since this is a device meant to be charged every night. What does a complete right. cycle mean in Apple's parlance? So a complete cycle, and this is fairly standard across manufacturers, it is a complete charge discharge. So if you discharge at 50% and then charge it back up, that's half a cycle. If you do that twice, that's a complete cycle. So if every day you're charging it halfway, then you know, in the course of a year, you're going to go through 170 some odd cycles. With the case of, of the Apple Watch, I think people are expecting to run it almost all the way down every day. So you're going to be going through a cycle a day. And if Apple is claiming a thousand cycles, then you're looking at a two to three year design life for the, for the battery. And that could start to add up for the watch for exactly what you say. So in three years, conceivably, I could be approaching a thousand cycles. And if it performed to spec, I could be, you know, let's say it's exactly on spec and it's nearing 80%. Well, suddenly I've lost a couple hours in my daily use. And then right. maybe I am, then I go and I pay, I forget what their charges. I think they've already listed a price. It's going to vary for, oh, actually, they have not, I don't think. It's going to vary by watch design, I think. Maybe the risk of going in or whatever they're going to do there. Uh, but they'll replace the battery for you at that point. Yeah, they're, they're saying it's around $79 plus $6.95 shipping and handling for a battery service. We are expecting, so just based on our experience with Apple's batteries elsewhere, when they say 400 cycles is the design life or 1,000 cycles is the design life, I, I treat that as the maximum life. Like, that's the best case scenario. There's a lot of situations where batteries don't last that long. We'll see, we'll see new iPhones six months in. People need a new battery for it. And there's no way they've burned all the way through maybe 400 cycles. So there's kind of a bell curve centered around that 1,000 that cycles. But it's relatively rare for somebody to be really happy with a battery after it crosses that threshold. I have been reading recently uh, that uh, while lithium ion has no memory effect like older batteries did, that there is still an issue about charging and discharging completely. Is that Does that remain a myth that, um, that not that you get memory effect, but that the battery wears faster if it doesn't go? So keeping a laptop plugged in 100% of the time, keeping your watch charging whenever it's not in use, are these bad battery behaviors or perfectly acceptable ones with modern battery management circuitry that's in uh, devices? No, I think there's reasonable. The, the, the only aspect of a memory that's in them is when you run it all the way down, it sets a counter. It says, okay, this is the bottom. And when you charge it all the way up, it says, okay, this is the top. And that's the range that it operates in. So every once in a while, it's actually kind of good to run it all the way down and charge it all the way back up. But it's not, it's not really an issue. The much, much bigger issue for battery life is temperature. These things are very temperature sensitive. If you leave it in the car and it gets really hot or if you're in really cold environments, uh, it will uh, burn through the battery chemistry faster. 
So that's that's the bigger issue. And that's where if you see something that doesn't come anywhere close to its expected design life, usually it's because it was used in kind of extreme temperatures. And that could be an issue. Uh, uh, right now, iOS devices, uh, well, I'll say the phone particularly, they're stored in pockets. Uh, so that can be an issue there. With the watch, the way that they've designed it, do you think that's going to, um, are we going to have a heat conductive factor from the wrist that affects things? Or is it less so because it's exposed? I think it'll be okay. Yeah, I think it's going to be less of an issue. I know with my laptop, you know, my MacBook Pro gets pretty hot and I think that reduces the battery life, but I don't I haven't heard anybody saying, "Oh, the watch gets hot from using it." I know that's definitely been the case with iPhones in the past. If I'm using my iPhone a lot, it gets hot itself and that will uh, long, or shorten the battery life. Uh, so, uh, so that that was that was my long sidebar cuz uh, batteries are <laughs> not going issue. I think people were no, batteries yeah. are important, absolutely. Well, and people were already issue. concerned what Apple's statement meant. And I'm like, no, it doesn't mean you can th- charge it a thousand times the battery's dead. It means they're expecting this cycle. And uh, But, you know, for effective purposes, like my, my MacBook Air, the reason I used your service to uh, buy a new battery is that after two plus years, I had not bought, I typically buy Apple Care for laptops because I typically use it heavily. And I did three times. Uh, I didn't buy it for this one by accident. And I did three times. And my battery was lasting maybe 50% within two and a half years of, of what its capacity should be. And I replaced it and I went back to this remarkable, you know, it became a new right. machine. It's like a new machine. Yeah. yeah. So I can understand people being concerned about it and it's it's worth knowing how hard it's going to be to get in there. So given these steps, uh, this sounds like already uh, there's been a lot of conversation about what normal watch shops do with high-end and low-end watches. Can this be just at this layer of there's a battery there and there'll be third parties making replacements or getting Apple parts if they can? Is this something that you think a watch shop with some sophistication or, or electronic shop is going to be able to gear up and replace your battery for you? Or is it really going to be an Apple serviceable item in, in most cases because of the, uh, the cost of what they're going to charge relative to what a repair shop would have to charge? I think there's going to be a lot of places you can take your watch to get it serviced. Uh, people are going to want these things serviced while they wait, and they aren't going to want to deal with a mail-in. You want to hang on to your watch. Same thing Same thing with phones. So, no, I think all of the mobile phone repair shops that have sprung up, and there's over 10,000 that are in the U.S. now that have all popped up in the last five, six years, all of those shops are going to be uh, able to upskill and, and be able to provide this service. So it's, it's straightforward enough. Anybody out there repairing iPhones or iPads isn't going to have trouble with this thing. But so we're definitely, you know, well, clearly we're going to see people with a busted face want to go in and get that uh, repaired without having to go to Apple for that. We're already starting to uh, to test parts, and there w- there will be repair options. That's one of the things we do. We supply these repair shops with the parts and tools and training that they need, and uh, we, we're hearing from shops. They're very excited about getting into a new business. It's funny. I want to reiterate to listeners, this is not a paid promotion. We, you know, I love iFixit. I've used it. Uh, and it's, 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 um, I don't want to say you're too good to be true because that's not true. You, you know, you run a company, you've got a service here and so forth, but you give away so much information. Uh, and I feel like, um, the cost of the service you offer is actually very, very compatible with, um, what do I want to say? I, I hope you're profitable. I hope you do well. Uh, but I don't feel like, I don't feel like I'm being overcharged. You know how there's a sense of, um, it's not that Apple overcharges. They have a different business model. Uh, and you know, I took in a dead laptop once and they charged me, I forget what their standard fee is. And they replaced everything in the thing for $200 or something out of warranty. So they have options as well. Um, right. But I just want to make sure people understand this is not a sponsor thing. We just like you guys <laughs> because you're <laughs> poking tiny. Uh, let's talk about tiny screws. Once you get the battery out, yeah. um, you start to get into some really weird places. And you have I saw you had to uh, you know file down or uh, right. uh, one of your tools to get in because the screws were, screw heads were so tiny. How I, I mean I can see the scale. I'm looking at fingers, but these are this is this is starting to get ridiculous. Is this the scale that watches usually operate at, or do they not have screws inside of watches like this? No, they, they absolutely do have screws. Normally they use flathead screws inside of watches. I think maybe Apple was, there's a little bit of an interesting angle that this screw went in at, which is maybe why they went with a tri-wing. But if you look at, in our in our photos, we have a, a mechanical watch. It's kind of a similar size. Uh, that's uh, just a gorgeous timepiece. And you can see it has dozens of screws inside it. Well, maybe a dozen. Um, and they're all just as small as, as the tri-wing screw that Apple used. But this is, this is it's a tri-wing, which is a, a three lobe, so it's like a Phillips screw but with with three lobes instead of four uh, we have uh, we actually sell tri-wing screwdrivers in our toolkits uh, for using for repairing Nintendo devices Nintendo has always used this tri-wing shape on their Game Boys 
Um, Apple, I think, probably decided to use it because of the physics involved in the geometries. I don't think it was the same sort of thing as the pentalobe screw, which they specifically chose that screw to keep people out. This is more just kind of a practical choice, and it just so happens that it's a smaller tri-wing screw than we have ever seen. I don't think anybody has used a tri-wing screw this small before. There isn't even a measurement name for it. So we were talking today about what we're going to call this screw. Um, I'm thinking, so we, right now we sell a Y1 screw and a Y0 screw, so this will probably be a Y00, which is <laughs> the new super small tri-wing. I saw a hat with that on once, but that meant Yale class of 2000. <laughs> Sorry, it looks like an elephant. You do a Y and a 00 on either end. Yeah, so this will be the U screw. Oh my gosh, that's right. It's a, it's your Ivy League screw, the Y00. <laughs> uh, well, so the, it's small. So we were fortunate <laughs> we had a file set and we could modify our screwdriver, but we kind of went into this expecting this. This is something that it's normal for watchmakers to have to kind of design and, and tinker and make their own tools because nobody else is dealing with things this small except watchmakers. There's there's so many parts in this thing. And what's fun to me as somebody who has been soldering electronics since I was 11 years old or maybe 10 is how many mechanical things there are in here. How many like it's supposed to electronic switches that there are mechanical buttons and springs and and so forth. Uh, I think there was at one point it seemed like I, if I remember right in the description, you were surprised to find um, how one of the buttons, the, the main button worked, right? Yeah, I mean, this whole thing is uh, is a impressively compact. I mean, you look at it and it's like it's it's just like an iPhone. I mean, it is an iPhone in a smaller package. It has everything that an iPhone has. You know, it's got a speaker, it's got a microphone, it's got buttons, it's got this new crown, and the uh, uh, the the sensor mechanism for that is interesting. So it, it it's amazing how much is is in this thing. It's, oh my gosh. And well, I think this is one of the things that's come up too, is that could a company other than Apple make a product this elaborate with this degree of fit and finish? Because not because they're the best in the world, not because of like, you know, superlatives, but more like because they've spent so long trying to get everything to fit together just right and having so many bespoke things made for them. They, they can make things at scale that are only affordable if you're making them at scale. They can design entire tool lines and whatever they need. And it feels like this shows that as you take this apart, that there's no, um, I remember I had a, I was studying graphic design in college. I had a professor, uh, who was elderly at the time. He talked about being hired to help redesign Reader's Digest. And the parameter they gave him was this 1950s. They said, um, we'll get a new typeface cut because it's still the day of metal type. That's fine, but you can't do anything that involves, uh, using more ink because that's expensive. And I feel like I have the same thing here. Like at the scale they're working, they're like, well, we can make new screws. We can make new devices. We can, you know, we could spend a hundred million dollars on a new lineup. Right, right. Yeah, it's it's impressive, and I mean the 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 amount of elaboration in this. I mean, there are things where we see there's no way you could have designed this watch without 3D CAD software. There's so many complex aspects of it. When we finally pulled out the 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 ribbon cable that connects all all the different cables and the debug port and everything, you pull it out, you lay it out. It just it looks like a flat ribbon cable. There's nothing magic about it. But when it's actually in the watch, it's folded this way and that. I mean, it, it's it's really labyrinthine inside. Uh, this is one of the few teardowns. I mean, I was watching the photos because I wasn't the one who took the watch apart. They took it apart in Australia. They're streaming the photos over. And I got to the end of it and I was like, man, we need to go back and take more pictures. I mean, we, we posted close to 100 photos inside this thing and it still isn't enough. It's complex enough that I want to see more. Oh, yeah. I'm looking at step 19 of your guide. This is at ifixit.com, obviously. Uh, and uh, step 19 has that cable unfolded. And it's, it's. I assume, uh, and this is no joke, I assume they hire origami experts to help with this. I know there's, because I. That's. I've read about, I think it's wonderful that an ancient skill uh, has an incredible utility. They work with protein folding, they work with package design, and I'm sure there are people with that kind of mental ability who are working on this sort of thing as well. I, th I thought the exact same thing. I thought it was like an origami piece. Uh, and, and as you can see, from from that step like we couldn't figure out how to unfold it without breaking it because <laughs> oh, no. it's an origami piece and then it's it's soldered down to the bottom of it so you think about assembling oh this thing and you have to solder it on and then fold everything into the case so your take uh we're sort of almost down to the bare metal of this thing as we walk through it oh i guess there's the remaining thing is I, you know my favorite new word is plethysmography because that's a great word to say uh and and you uh, I, you know i'm working on uh writing actually something about that right now i'm working on some details but uh the technique that Apple used is not, uh, it's not unheard of, but it's, I think this is the first mass market device it's going to appear in the green LED approach. And, uh, and so you got down to that part and you can see 
how they um, assemble these, again, very fine components, very, very tiny things, so that it can do a, a very a very accurate uh, pulse detection. Right. And, and the, uh, what I'm speculating, and this is you go back to last fall when Apple was sitting down with folks at the FDA and they're saying, hey, what can we measure? What can we tell people? I think they realized that technically they could do a, a common medical test, uh, pulse oximetry, which is measuring the amount of oxygen in your blood. I think they realized that they could do that test, which is something that vital sign monitors at hospitals do. Usually the first thing that they do when you get to the hospital is they check the level of oxygen in your blood. They said, okay, technically we can do this, but will the FDA let us display that information to people? And it seems like the conclusion at the moment was no, let's just show people their pulse, which isn't necessarily a medical diagnosis. Because the moment that you start talking about the blood oxygen level, now you've got maybe a medical diagnosis on your hands, which might be bad. I wonder if they'll add that into research kit, if they'll have experimental options that the FDA may approve with disclosure. So, you know, say we're testing, you know, such and such Johns Hopkins is doing a test where you have to opt in and so forth. And it's going to use our plethysmograph. Ismograph uh, to detect that uh, because uh, you know as you say it's right it 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 could do that. There's also the issue of uh, blood pressure, which uh, I don't think a single watch could do. But there's uh, there's body fat, which can be measured if there's a way to pass right. uh, electricity between a couple points. There's a lot of things that could come in, in terms of personal uh, physical body measurement. But I, but I think you're right. I think your speculation is probably very good about uh, especially after the 23andMe situation where they got dinged for. Uh, maybe making too broad a case and the FDA was uncomfortable and they've been able to circle around and come back out of that. So Apple may be being as conservative as it needs to be in these early stages and then has room to grow right. um, through researchers. The other thing is they can always collect the data, send it to researchers. As long as they don't show the data to the user, as long as they're not making a medical diagnosis from it, it's totally okay to collect the data. Oh, that's so you could have a research kit thing that says, we're going to collect this. We're not going to tell you anything exactly. about it. We're testing the accuracy. And if it's accurate enough, maybe this will exactly. be a feature. And then something. once a week you go into a doctor and they actually measure your real pulse oxygen level. And then they've kind of got comparisons to compare it with the accuracy that's of this cool. sensor. Well, as someone who has very successfully navigated many health issues in my life and is very healthy right now, <laughs> extremely healthy right now, uh, I, I love this kind of thing because that's one of the, the ongoing ability to monitor certain kinds of personal metrics can provide right. enormous lead. I mean, there's so much they're discovering. If I could hold the watch up, a future watch with a um, uh, with a camera and some other things up to my eye, and it could take a picture of my right. retina and analyze the the relative scale of my blood vessels. All these things could be great and uh, and uh, help do uh, preventative care. The holy grail is blood sugar. If, if they could get blood sugar, that would change lives for millions of people. And that's, that's really what we need is something as elegant as the Apple Watch that's always on you that can do blood sugar analysis. It's going to happen. I believe that it's, it's physically possible. It's within the realm of physics. It's just a question of measurementation and being able to, to roll it out at a broad scale. Um, yeah. All right. So we got, we got down to the, to the bottom here. And so what's your overall evaluation? It sounds like you're fairly positive. Uh, it's been your tone all along from the repairability side. Yeah, I would say we are cautiously optimistic. So we got to the end of it, and I remember everyone was saying, "Oh, you, I fix it. You're Apple haters. You're gonna, you're gonna give this watch a really low score." Look, we go into everything objectively, and we, and every product is different. Uh, we, we figure out how difficult it is for us to get in. We're estimating how hard it's going to be once there's a repair procedure available. So we gave this watch a five out of ten, which is about middle of the road. And usually people that say, well, what does your repair score mean? You start at one, you go all the way up to 10. 10 is something that's really easy that anybody can do. It's a product that comes with a repair manual. Usually it's designed by the manufacturer to be serviced by anyone. And then as you get down in the lower digits, you're talking about product that maybe is better for a repair shop to do. So at a five out of 10, we say that this product is right on the borderline between something that a consumer would do and something that you'd want to pay a repair shop to do. Completely up to you, uh, but it's, it's, it's a little bit difficult, but it's not impossible at all. But it's nice too because it sounds like this is clearly in the realm of repair shops. Which then, then you have the difference of can I do this myself? How much equipment do I want to buy to do it? Am I what, what's the risk of me? I you know I've got a Mac Mini from 2011. I do not want to replace the hard drive in it. There's yeah, and I've I've soldered RS-232 ports. I'm not nervous about things <laughs> like that. But the odds of for a four-year-old computer of me destroying it in some way yeah. because of how Apple did it and be, you know it's an older device. Like well, if I want to do it, I'll find some I'll find a shop that could do it for me because then yeah. they'll take the risk. And they'll fix it if there's a problem. But you know, my uh, you know, I'll, I'll open up the bottom of, uh, of my MacBook Air because I could pop it open and put something in. So I, I think there's. Um, it sounds very positive that there'll be a lot of places to go to if you want to get something done, as with an iPhone and, or iPad today. 
I think so. It's kind of funny. We've been training watch repair shops to fix iPhones, and now we're kind of in this interesting <laughs> position where we're tra- training phone repair shops uh, to fix watches. Oh, that's great. It's a, it's the best cottage industry in the world. I've talked to so many people over the years who uh, the amount of equipment they need and training is so relatively low if they're good with their hands that people can have this as a side business in college, and, and there's so many people who will change out the digitizer and, and batteries and so forth. And so it's, I think it's actually created, not intentionally, Apple certainly didn't want it, uh, but between them and other companies. They've created a great, uh, you know, cottage business, a, a dorm room business scale thing or home business um, that that uh, has a decent markup where everyone gets a good part of the deals. Um, yes, I completely agree. It's exciting to see. And by the way, that this uh, the stainless steel watch. I mean, it's very similar. Uh, and and as shops get in, I mean, you know, the the easy thing is, I mean, it's getting in the, the hard part. And this is where kind of the mastery is casing as you get in, because you got to go in with a bit of a knife. So we uh, we dinged up the aluminum one that was the first one we took apart. We dinged it up pretty good, but then on on the stainless steel one, we managed to do it really without nicking it at all. So that's like the second one. We were good. So I, I'm I'm pretty confident. We're working on the repair manual for this thing now, and uh, our hope is to have that out within a couple weeks so that everybody out there can can get going doing these repairs this is a little tweaky but would you recommend uh, putting on like blue tape or some kind of uh, plastic covering to uh to avoid nicking it while you're taking it off or does it have to be done i don't know it, it might help but i mean you got to get right mm-hmm. into the into the crevice there and you have to use something really sharp so i think it's going to come more to the feel and, and and finesse you can also always i mean you can you can ding it while you're getting it open and then file and 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 you know fix it before the the ding before you put it back on which is normal. I mean, watches are going to get dinged in normal use anyway. So everybody is expecting these things to get dinged and scratched, and then you know it's going to be it's going to be learning how to polish it. Well, I've already seen some hilarious watch cases that will work with the strap that are designed to keep the metal part untouched. I'm thinking, why do you buy a metal watch and then hide all of the metal yeah. part away? But we'll see. Uh, Kyle, thank you so much for sharing your expertise and insight into taking this thing apart. It's been great to have you. Thank you for having me on, and I am uh, very, very excited to get, be getting into these things more and uh, and taking the next one apart. Hey, 2.0 can't be far away. It's not. <laughs> Thank you. Well, thanks again to Kyle for taking the time to talk to us about what makes the Apple Watch talk. No, tick, tick, talk. Uh, <laughs> I'm sorry. That's a Kesha it's song. A, it's been a... So Monday morning when we're recording this, it's already a long week. Uh, <laughs> TikTok. Uh, so uh, thanks again to Red Hat for being our sponsor this week. And I've been talking to Susie Oaks, the executive editor of Macworld. Hello and goodbye, Susie. Thank you again. Talk to you again next week. Uh, this, this has been episode 454 of the Macworld podcast on April 29th, 2015. And join us again. <laughs>